amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Moses Lappin, and today I'm joined by Professor Eliyahu Stern to discuss his new book, Jewish Materialism, The Intellectual Revolution of the 1870s, published by Yale University Press in 2018. Professor Eli Stern is Professor of Modern Jewish Intellectual and Cultural History at Yale University. Jewish Materialism, The Intellectual Revolution of the 1870s, is a radical new book that uncovers a hitherto ignored intellectual movement in Jewish Eastern Europe and finds new antecedents to the story of modern Jewish history. It it brings together a group of Jewish thinkers who sought to understand the ways in which Jewish identity could be interpreted not in terms of law, tradition, and ritual practice, but rather after an engagement with the thought of Karl Marx and Charles Darwin in terms of land, labor, and bodies. Jewish materialists asked what it meant to be a Jew in a period when rabbinic authority waned and the physical pressures of poverty and anti-Semitism dominated daily life, a time when to be religious was an economic choice. Rather than framing this narrative as a lachrymose story of secularism, of the inevitable rejection of religion, Jewish materialism highlights how this group of thinkers found renewed meaning in the Bible and the Kabbalah, and it discovers a Jewish genealogy that took notions of physicality and social justice seriously. The consequences of this intellectual revolution would play out with profound effect during the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I'm here today with Professor Stern on the Jewish Studies channel of the New Books Network. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. To begin, uh, let's start with a a broad question uh, about your book, which covers so many topics and and has a number of figures, both known and unknown, uh, throughout the different chapters, um, and really successfully weaves together all these themes um, in a dramatic way. So we're going to try and unpack it a little bit today. Um, But before we begin, um, could you give us a sense of what the book is about? What is Jewish materialism? um, And why did you choose to structure it in the way that you did? So Jewish Materialism um, is a book about um, a a specific moment in Jewish history, um, focusing on when do Jews begin to think about their Jewish identities and what it means to be Jewish in terms of their relationship and that, for that matter, people's relationship in general to land, labor, and bodies. Um, now, those things seem kind of obvious to us that people would care about, you know, their capacity to um, own land or have access to resources, protect their bodies, um, and be able to um, have jobs. Um, But in fact, in terms of Judaism and the history of Jews, this book really charts the first time where Jews begin to consciously and rigorously um, begin to describe Judaism and Jewish values in terms of human beings' capacities to appropriate the physical world. So the the book is about... um, specifically that moment in Jewish uh, intellectual history. And it, and it pans out onto something much larger, and that is the major political uh, movements um, 
that Jews become overrepresented in in the late 19th and early 20th century. Uh, and it, it asks a, a simple question of to what degree or what might Judaism as a set of ideas um, have to do with Jews' overrepresentation in movements surrounding the fair and equal distribution of resources in society. So the book is about a specific moment in Jewish thought, Jewish history, but it, it, it pans out onto a much wider um, question, which is Jews' involvement in Western politics um, in the 19th and 20th century. I hope we get to talk about that sort of afterlife of Jewish materialism uh, later on in the conversation. Um, but could you give us a greater sense of what that moment is? What were the 1860s and 70s like, the sort of competitive marketplaces of ideas and ideologies that you describe in the book um, and that you set this concept of Jewish materialism in? What were these competing forces? So the book is, is about basically a decade or two of Jewish history and focuses on the North Jews who lived in the Northwestern provinces in Russia, uh, specifically lands that today are considered part of Lithuania. Um, but at that time were considered part of the pale of settlement, the area where Jews were, uh, Jews, most Jews were forced or constricted to live within. And, uh, the reason why it focuses on uh, Jews who lived in those provinces in that in, in that in that day in those decades, eighteen sixties, eighteen seventies, is because a few really important things happen that give rise to um, what I'm calling and what some of my protagonists call Jewish materialism. Uh, the first is that Jews become declassed. Jews living in the pale of settlement in those areas basically begin to see their economic condition as worse off than their parents. Uh, the emancipation of the serfs in 1861 sends the serfs flooding into Jewish economic markets and overtaking or competing with them for jobs that they had held in, um, in markets such as handcrafts, uh, tailoring, um, and in certain lower mercantile activities. And that greater competition um, creates a certain kind of economic crisis that Jews begin to feel uh, intensely, intensely. The second is continued uh, residential restrictions, lack of mobility, a lack of options. Jews were not able for the most part, not all Jews, but most Jews did, were not able to move beyond a specific region which the Russian government had forced them to live within. And also a certain disillusion with the Russian Empire more generally. Um, the fact that Jews didn't see themselves as having uh, the kinds of opportunities that their brethren economically were having, having in Germany. France and England at that time. So these are the kind of social and economic conditions that make Jews feel as though they are becoming declassed, that they are losing ground economically. So at the same time that that's happening, they also begin um, to experience what would what would erupt in a full blown pogrom. So you begin to have some small pogroms taking place. Uh, in Odessa, there's one in the 1870s. And throughout the Pale of Settlement, there begins to become increasingly a sense of there being a threat to the Jewish, to a Jewish body, to Jewish, to Jewish physical being. And finally, at that time that those, these, these things are taking place, Jews begin to read a different kind of philosophical literature, a different kind of scientific literature. And we begin to see the emergence of Jewish translations of specifically Marx, Karl Marx, and Charles Darwin into Jewish languages. And the mix of those elements of Marx and Darwin, coupled with a disillusionment with the Russian Empire, a threat 
to Jews' bodies and a declassing of their economic conditions becomes the basis for a group of Jews, roughly I have about 20 of them that I discuss in the book, which I chose, but it could have been 50, it could have been 75, but a group of Jews that live in this region that all come of age in the 60s and 70s that begin to speak about what they describe either in Yiddish or in Russian or in Hebrew as something called Jewish materialism, seeing the physical world as a site of Jewish identity. So what would it mean to see economics as a Jewish question? What would it mean to see Jews as being defined by their bodies as Jewish? And and what would it mean to see Jews um, as a Jewish identity as being about the ownership or access to land? Jews still in the 1860s and 1870s living in the Pale of Settlement are not able to acquire the land that they are living on. They're not able to own it. So at a certain point, those things can no longer be taken for granted by Jews. And they begin to reconceive of what they value as being about land, labor, and bodies. And just to give you one one quick example of what, what the implications of that are, is if you spoke to a Jew in the Pale of Settlement in the 18th century, chances are if you were talking about Judaism with him or her, they were going to say it was about studying Torah, Torah Lishma, or the practicing of certain rituals, or for that matter, rationality, reason, or ethics. And that shifts in the 19th century to a different set of categories rooted around land, labor, and bodies. While the term materialism might be familiar to our listeners, um, and was familiar to me before I read it, what was interesting to me and what I think you, you really opened up was the Jewish part of the materialism. What was it about these thinkers that recast um, this concept, this familiar concept that they inherited from Darwin and Marx and elsewhere um, into Jewish terms? What was distinctly Jewish about it? Um, and furthermore, um, one of the things that you talk about in the book is the ways in which these thinkers created a Jewish genealogy for these ideas. Mm. Not only were they new ideas adopted into a, a Jewish language or a Jewish thought system, um, but in a sense, they were always part of the Jewish tradition um, and ignored. So what was this genealogy and, and why was it ignored? So the first thing that I, I have to do in this book or that I had to do was free up what the term materialism meant. The, the term often today is associated with a, what, what interpreters of Karl Marx have traditionally called historical materialism, which is a certain way of looking at history through the distribution and accumulation of goods and resources by certain groups in society, and the way in which history can be understood through matter, and through the division of that matter, and through the organization of that matter. And what I went and showed was in the 1860s, 1870s, that term means a whole range of different things. It's not yet frozen or associated with, uh, with Marx's historical materialism. And, and for that reason, the term itself has multiple Meanings and and one of the things I try to show in the book is first of all just freeing up the term historically of what that term materialism meant at a certain point in time and what it politically also signified at that point in time and it didn't necessarily have to do always with a, a communist political um, agenda or even a socialist political agenda even some of the things that we would today associate with capitalism were sometimes part of or identified with those who would um, invoke the idea of materialism for their argument. So that was the, the first thing I, I tried to do is to free up what that term meant. And then in terms of Judaism, the impact would be also varied and broad. For some, it would mean um, 
a kind of specifically, it would have specific Jewish connotations, which would be an argument about why Jews should have fair and equal distribution of resources. Um, and for others, it would be looking at Judaism through a materialist lens and interpreting Judaism through a universal prism. So there would be some, such as Aaron Shmuel Lieberman, the father of Jewish socialism, who would reinterpret the entire Jewish tradition through a lens of materialism, privileging certain texts, such as Kabbalistic ones and biblical ones over, let's say, rabbinic ones, um, to be able to make or marshal the argument that Judaism and a certain kind of materialism, which he tended to identify with Marx's theory of historical materialism, or Marx's also theories in the Communist Manifesto, as being one in the same. And so Lieberman would read Marx as a Jew and would read Marxism as a Jewish philosophy. But the term Jewish materialism would also be invoked by someone like, let's say, um, uh, Moses Lillianbloom, arguably the founder of Zionism, the founder of the first Zionist uh, um, uh, organization. And Moses Lillianbloom would speak about a mabat kashmi ala chayim, a materialist perspective on life, would be not in, would be invoking the term not in any kind of Marxist. Uh, manner, but rather as a way of telling Jews that a whole new set of values needed to be focused upon, um, to get them away from thinking about rituals, to get them away from thinking about studying rabbinic texts, and to have them focusing on their physical well-being. In that perspective, he happened to also identify as having some precedent in a Judaic tradition. Um, however, he didn't see Judaism as being necessarily or essentially aligned with what he would identify as materialism. So there would be a whole range of different ways in which that term would be invoked. But the one thing that all my characters, those who identify with this movement, that I'm describing would 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 the, the the critical features that all of them identify with is number one, a deep critique of the Russian Empire, the giving up on that empire as being able to ultimately secure the Jew, Jews' material well-being. The second is a deep skepticism to a progressive view of history, that history was not improving. And third, seeing Jewish identity actually in physical terms as opposed to abstract uh, terms. Could you give us a sense of some more of these figures? You outline in the introduction um, some characteristics that hold them together, um, that rather than being just a loose group of, of people who, who wrote in this period, um, you identified a particular relationship with their parents, uh, born at a particular time in general, mm -hmm. a relationship to tradition, um, you know, and this sort of sense about the future of the Jewish people, etc. Um, so you mentioned Moshe Lillian Bloom and you mentioned some other ones. Could you give us a few more examples um, of exactly what these kind of thinkers were like and uh, how they operated in some of their philosophies? So they're both men and women. Uh, that comprise the movement that I'm describing. Um, they're both men like Moses Leib Lillianbloom and Yehuda Leib Levin, who would become seen as founders uh, of the Zionist movement. But there'd be those such as Pavel Axelrod, who'd be a founder of the Mensheviks, um, as well as those such as Aaron Lieberman and and Morris Finchevsky, who would eventually be known as the grandfather of the Bund. Among them, there would be those such as Chas Yashur, who would become a communist and a leader in the Russian Revolution. Um, and there would be Henny Helfman, who would be tried in the, in the trial of the 50 for uh, the assassination of Alexander II. And all of them 
for the most part, share a few, a few important, there's a few important points I think most of them share in common. Um, most of them had a certain tense relationship with their parents. Um, none of them were born and died in the same location. In other words, there was a great deal of mobility in their lives. In many instances, their revolutionary activities were also attached to a certain kind of sexual profile. Um, Aaron Shmuel Lieberman, for example, I discovered, is one of the first recordings that we have of a major Jewish political and intellectual figure who it could be said was a bisexual. I found data that suggested that he was having an affair in London with um, uh, Isaac Salkinson. And on the women's side, we also know that many of the women, those such as Chas Yashur, refused uh, to be married in order to have greater freedoms and liberties, and also engaged in premarital sexual um, activities uh, during uh, their time in Berlin. So uh, the profile is, is, is very diverse in terms of politically where they would go. Some would remain observant their whole lives. Other would, others would um, uh, deny all ties with, with Judaism. Uh, but there are certain shared characteristics, high degree of mobility, certain kind of tense relationship with their parents. And finally, um, uh, a great deal degree of sexual experimentation that I think we see in most of the characters um, that are being addressed in the book. It's such an interesting uh, group of people and the, and the way in which you bring everything together under this one theme. I'm curious as how you came to write the book and, and what the process of research was like. Uh, you, you mentioned in the preface how you discovered in going back to uh, the archival sources or, or earlier editions of works, how many of these thinkers' writings had been censored or rewritten or amended. Um, so that's an interesting interesting way into it and, and how you discovered that. But I'm interested also in, in what, what motivated you to write the book um, and how did the research, how did you conduct the research? Yeah, I, I, I actually think that um, the process of writing it also became part of the thesis. So when I when I first sat down to write the book, I thought I was going to write a book about tradition. And um, I just finished writing a book on the Go Vilna. And so I thought about writing a book about what the legacy of the Go Vilna would have been and how the idea of tradition was constructed by Jews in the 19th century. And I kept on reading and reading, and finally I hit about the 1860s, and all of a sudden I realized, wait, uh, this is a different ball game. Something's happening in the 1860s that's just totally different than anything that I, I, I had understood about the period leading up to that. All the categories of Hasidim, Mitnagdim, Enlighteners, none of these categories seem to be in play the same way. Um, the terms that were being used, the style of writing, something had begun to shift in the 1860s. And then by the 1870s, it just seemed to me that that whole category of tradition was no longer being rhetorically used by the major intellectuals, Jewish intellectuals in Eastern Europe. And so I, I began to shift to think about I was writing a book about secularism. Um, and the end of of, of tradition. And then it, it took me maybe only about six months to realize that that was also a, a, a faulty assumption because while there was a huge critique on tradition that was happening, the critique that was taking place wasn't happening in the name of some kind of atheistic secular movement, but rather it was coming out of a rereading of the Kabbalah, such as by Lieberman, or a rereading of Spinoza and the Bible, such as the one put forward by Mordechai Kaplan's teacher, Joseph Susnitz. Um, and while there certainly was a profound critique 
on rabbinic Judaism, on halachic Judaism, on any kind of orthodoxy. That certainly um, was was thrown out the window. Um, there wasn't, this wasn't a, se- a, secu- a secularization. The story, rather, was the way in which the religious life world of these individuals was becoming attached to the physical world, the way in which their sets of values of what constituted Judaism were being redefined in light of their physical condition. And so I began to then think about it in terms of in terms of a materialist discourse in that period. And when I began to dig a little bit deeper, I realized that in many instances, because of the rise of Zionism after 1881, after the pogroms of 1881, and the rise of Bundism, that will happen at the same time, and Jews who will enter into the Russian Revolution and Russian revolutionary politics, this moment becomes eclipsed philosophically by a much larger set of political movements. And so what would happen is when people, the protagonists of this book, would go to write their own stories, they would write about them in terms of their involvement in creating the Jewish labor movement, their involvement in creating Zionism, their involvement in establishing or helping to establish the conditions for the Russian for Russian revolutionary politics. And what would get pushed by the wayside, what would get elided, would be this moment in which they were beginning to think about Judaism as a materialistic religion. And so, for example, someone like Moshe Leib Lillianbloom, because he didn't want to be identified with anything that could smell of Marxism, Lillianbloom went back and got rid of all of his citations the various materialist thinkers in the 1870s, all the Russian thinkers, in many cases, he just simply got rid of those citations in his collected writings. So that would be one, that's one example that there were many others um, that can be pointed to for how this discourse um, simply was not able to be recognized by scholars who just read the collected writings of many of these figures. The opening chapter of the book um, discusses tradition broadly and and the ways in which these materialists related to tradition, um, the way they came out of tradition and the way in which they sought to revive, I suppose, um, Judaism in the spirit of materialism. Um, And the central three chapters outline three different types of materialisms. Uh, what you call social materialism, scientific materialism, and practical materialism. So I was wondering if you can outline for us um, the argument of these three chapters, what you mean by uh, each of those types of materialisms, and how they function together to create this broader uh, patchwork of a Jewish materialism. So the first chapter, you know, uh, the first chapter is just based on the question you asked before. That was what I thought I was going to write about, and that was basically to try to show the reader that first chapter, what is not materialism? Um, what, what that world of the, uh, the late, uh, of the early 19th century looked like for Jews and Jewish thought in the Pale of Settlement um, uh, from roughly 1820 uh, to 1860. And, it, and it, it's meant to also show what the economic philosophy of those thinkers was. And the way in which that economic philosophy um, was one that was rooted in a certain kind or a certain theory of tradition. So in many ways, that first chapter is a setup to be able to tell the reader what's not materialism and at the same time, be able also to tell people what's unique about the religious condition of Jews living in the Pale of Settlement under the Russian Empire. What, what did they try to do to transform Judaism, to make it work, to make it work for the Russian Empire? 
And it's only once that fails, and by fails, I mean both as an intellectual project that it appears as coherent and fails both in terms of the ability for Jews to have greater access to resources in the way in which their their brethren in Western Europe um, are able to have access. So that's what the point of the first chapter is. And then the next three chapters really tries to describe the multiple ways in which the discourse of materialism is picked up by Jews, appropriated, and then reinterpreted into a Jewish key. So the three chapters that you that you mentioned um, focus on different aspects of Jews' encounter with materialism and also different kinds of politics that will get associated um, with materialism. So the first chapter, is, a, is a, which deals with, it, with materialism, is a kind of social materialism, which focuses on someone like Lillian Bloom and his deep critique of Jewish society and its consumption and production patterns. And what Lillian Bloom says is, you're consuming more than you're producing. And what you're producing is something that has no market value. And that is, you're producing a lot of Torah. There are a lot of Batei Medrash. There are tons of Hasidic Shtiblach. And nobody's got bread on the table. So Lillian Bloom says the first thing you have to do is try to look at the society in terms of consumption and production and ask yourself, what are you producing? What are you consuming? And he focuses on also the way those resources get eat up in shiduchim, in marriages, the way in which women that come from wealthy families are married off to men that, that have no economic capacities. Their primary job is simply to sit on benches and learn all day. And Lillian focuses on that male who sits and sucks all the wealth out of Jewish life. And he says, this is where the problem is. You want bread on your table? You have to address the fact that you're consuming more of it than you're producing. The second chapter really deals with the reception of of Darwin in Jewish thought and focuses on a a little-known figure um, who was actually far more influential than we realize, and that's Joseph Susnitz, who would become the primary teacher of Mordechai, of a young Mordechai Kaplan in America. And, and Susnitz was really the first to um, address the philosophical materialism that came out of German-speaking lands in the mid-19th century, specifically the works of those such as Buchner and Voch and other scientific materialists. But also, he was one of the first to create a theology of Judaism using Darwin. And he introduces a whole biomedical language for understanding Jewish difference and as a basis for Jewish politics. What does it mean to see a Jew as a different kind of being? Talking in terms of nature. To see there being something called a Jewish body as opposed to just Jewish minds or Jewish ideas. And so Susnitz opens up onto a much larger conversation about race and religion, about Jews as a racial category, or and, and the question of cosmopolitan versus nationalistic politics and its relationship to a certain kind of biomedical language. And finally, the, the, the third chapter is, is, is the reception of Karl Marx and the way in which Marx and Jewish Marxists will end up critiquing a lot of that, a lot of those assumptions about science, about the, about the givenness of science, 
and being able to focus again on the question of the distribution of goods in society. But more generally, one of the things I discovered in that chapter was that the reception of Marx that happens in Jewish life often focused also about around reading Marx through the Kabbalah and through um, the Bible. And so the first readers of Marx actually saw in Eastern Europe, actually saw him as a Jew and interpreted Marx's philosophy through a Jewish prism. So this is the, that makes the core of the book. And the final chapter really describes what all that has to do with the emergence also of Zionism and how Zionism in the figure of Peretz Smolenskin and others such as Ben Yehuda and Lillian Bloom will end up using those theories, transforming them, building on them in the construction of what would become the basis of a certain kind of Zionist ideology at the beginning of the 1880s. It seems from what you've described and from the book um, that materialism to some of these thinkers or to most of these thinkers was not only a, an intellectual construct, um, but had some practical value. There was some pra pra you know, pragmatic philosophy towards their materialism. Um, and I guess a number of the, the sort of implicit um, things that you deal with with regards to this practicality is regards to their relationship or the relationship of Jews in Eastern Europe to anti-Semitism and the ways in which um, this materialism sought to solve that in some ways, um, as well as ideas relating to Jewish acculturation or secularization um, or nationalism. So I was wondering if you could unpack a little bit about the ways in which some of these thinkers opposed materialism to something else um, and the ways in which materialism was, was to them a solution to the problems faced by Jews at the time. Jewish materialism was their answer to the Jewish question. Um, one of the things I try to show in the book is I try to answer one of the most tricky questions of Jewish history, which is, why did Jews get on boats in 1881? And Jews in Eastern Europe get on boats in 1881 to America and to Palestine. Um, it's at that point that really Jewish life radically, the course of Jewish history radically changes. And what, what this book says is, for them to have gotten on boats to Palestine and America, they had to have imagined what those countries were about. They had to have an idea of what it was or why it was they were getting on boats. Yes, they were poor. Yes, they were poor. But we also know that where the major pogroms took place was not predominantly where Jews, from where Jews got on boats. They weren't the same populations. So the question is, is what was in their minds when they were going on that boat? What propelled them? And what I think propelled them was the recognition that the Russian Empire and the project of liberalism, that their capacity to acculturate, to assimilate, eventually be emancipated, was not going to happen. It was not going to happen for them in the Russian Empire. And so they, in their minds, what I tried to get at in this book is trying to create the, um, the economic imaginary, the physical imaginary that they had in embarking on those massive journeys. I mean, one of the most unique things about, about Zionism is the degree to which it was imagined before it was actualized. Because Jews don't have a land that they're sitting on to be able to be making their arguments about Jewish nationalism. They have to imagine that land. And so the question of the imaginary becomes essential to any kind of discussion about practical Jewish politics that we always speak about happening after 1881. And so what this book is trying to do is trying to give us the imaginary that could, that could provide the background to understand what politically will emerge 
and why Jews will turn their back on that project of emancipation. I mean, one of the interesting things about Jews coming to America or Jewish populations in the United States and the Jewish population in Palestine is none of them end up going through, for the most part, those who leave Eastern Europe, through the project of emancipation. And that's one of the things that Jews in America and the Jews in in Palestine will end up experiencing similarly, which is that they don't really go through an emancipatory process. Sure, there are certain anti-Semitic laws in, that are still on the books in America, um, but none of them go through the same process of emancipation that takes place in Western Europe. And that that happens with a different conception of politics. And what happens with Jews in 1870s is, is for the most part, they begin to see themselves politically outside the context of them having a state. They don't have a state to reference. But what Marx, and Marx allows them to do is to think of themselves as political actors. And that opens up a whole range of different possibilities for them. An additional element to all of this um, is the role of religion and belief um, for these materialists and, and what they projected for other people. How did they see the religious elements of Judaism fitting into their worldviews? Um, and particularly, what did they sort of prescribe for other people to be a materialist and also to be a religious or believing Jew? The question is, what do we mean by the word religious? Um, that's the big question here. And... You, and and what I think, you know, for someone like Lieberman, religious isn't halacha. Religious isn't the Talmud. Religious isn't davening three times a day. The religion that he's invoking, or that he's interpreting, is a religion that comes out of the Bible, and it's a religion that comes out of the Kabbalah. And it's a religion that fundamentally is attached, that the value is being attached to people's physical lives. And so for them, what being Jewish means is it means being focused on the fair and equal distribution of resources in society. That becomes, that becomes their end goal. That becomes their objective. That becomes their telos. That's what they are striving to achieve. Now, for some, that will be attached to a larger social revolution that Jews will play an active and leading role in, but one that will ultimately be universal. For others, it will be much more of a national project that will be that will not end in any kind of universal um, end game. Um, the only person who seems to give some weight to the rabbinic tradition out of the people that I, that I study is Lillian Bloom gives some weight, not as a kind of halachic enterprise, absolutely not. But the idea that Jewish law is focused on the way people act, for Lillian Bloom, that remains an important feature and something that he feels he can build upon. But for most in this story, the Bible and Kabbalah, those such as Judah Levin, Suznitz, Lieberman, the Ari, Lutzato, are the central building blocks for creating a modern Jewish theology. Not the Talmud or uh, the scholastic debates of the Rambam. Could you describe the ways in which these thinkers um, and these ideas were received, and what some of the reaction towards them and their ideas were um, during the period that they were active that you describe in the 60s and 70s, um, as well as afterwards. Well, in the 60s and 70s, most of them are marginalized. They have to flee their homes. Uh, Eliezer Zuckerman, who had become a leader in, the, in, in Russian revolutionary politics, Sukerman would famously uh, describe having stones thrown at him 
and Chasya Shur as they walked down the streets uh, in Moilev in the 1870s. Um, Henny Helfman described on the pages of Kolma Vassar the fights that she would have with her parents. So in the 1870s, these groups were, were marginalized. And Lieberman himself um, and Gorevich, they were fleeing for their lives. Eventually, they were also tried in Berlin um, uh, for being nihilists. The community denounced them. Uh, the Magad of Vilna uh, uh, got up and denounced them in 1876, uh, telling people to stay away from... Uh, um, those uh, po- these political upstarts. Uh, Lillian Bloom was practically kicked out of Kovno. Um, these people were, you know, were, were were viewed as the most dangerous people in Jewish life at the time. Um, and this is a very very important lesson I think people forget: is that the founders of Zionism were despised by the Orthodox establishment. Orthodoxy stood militantly opposed to the Zionist project. Of course, to the Bundist project as well, all modern Jewish politics. They remained staunch, staunchly in the corner of the Tsar and of the Russian Empire. And what took place eventually was Lillian Bloom would have eventually end up softening some of the stances towards the rabbinic elite. But for the most part, what was a marginalized group in the 1870s would become the fathers and mothers of major Jewish political movements and also Jews' involvement in larger revolutionary movements at the start of the 20th century as well. Um, and like you see many of times, ideas that at one point were, you know, viewed as as marginal and were uh, and people who were ostracized, eventually become seen as an avant garde and as the founding fathers of a new and mothers of a new era. I would like to conclude along these lines. Could you describe for us a little bit of what happens afterwards? Um, your book, in some senses, acts as a, a preface or a preamble towards um, a type of Jewish political history that happens after the 60s and 70s and is the sort of political history that I think is more well known um, than what you've uncovered in your book. But what's the relationship between these political figures that you've described in this uprising, this Jewish materialism, um, and the Jewish politics that follows particularly in the 90s um, and then obviously with Zionism um, afterwards? Well, those like Susnitz and Vinchevsky and then later Abe Khan come to the United States of America. Um, and in America will become at the forefront, specifically Vinchevsky and Khan will become at the forefront of the Jewish labor movement and establishing the basis of the economic, of the economic, justice agenda of modern America, of American Jewry. Um, economic justice would become the basis of the American Jewish progressive political platform that would largely hold almost even till today. Um, the idea that people's physical well-being and that the fair and equal distribution of resources in society is the primary concern of Judaism would basically become the the dominant political legacy of Jews in the United States. Now, of course, there are exceptions. All we have to do is is to look at the Orthodox today to see the exception to that rule. However, as a general overarching kind of sweep of American Jewish history, that progressive economic agenda is largely put into motion following 1881 with these Eastern European Jews coming to the United States of America. So there we have one story. But part of the story also ends up shifting over towards uh, Palestine. And that is 
the story that Lillian Bloom begins and Smolenskin begins and to some degree Judah Levin and Isaac Kaminer begin. And that's the story about uh, a Jewish sovereignty and the question of Jewish nationalism um, and Jews being able to have a homeland that would become the basis of enacting a certain kind of economic political program that begins to already be formulated in this in this book. And finally, you have those such as Axelrod and Chas Yeshur and Eliezer Zuckerman that will and Aaron Zundolevich that will make their way into Russian revolutionary politics and see this moment in their lives as simply one stage that would culminate in something different. For them, uh, they would not end up in any way identifying with Jewish materialism. But if you study their history, you see how their first reception of Marx was also many a times attached to a certain kind of Jewish upbringing, certain kind of Jewish economic standing, and a certain kind of place of marginalization that they had within Russian society. So in many ways, uh, this book doesn't have one, it doesn't lead in one specific direction. It tries to begin the story that would go much beyond the uh, simply one political movement, so much so that um, one could even begin to see the minority rights movement that emerges at the beginning of the 20th century and those Jews who took active roles in that movement as also basing themselves and using certain ideas that were inspired by those uh, that I discuss in this work. So it's not just a book about, you know, Jewish Jews and socialism or, or Zionism or Jews and communism. Uh, but even we'll touch on certain kinds of Jews and certain versions of liberalism, like the minority rights movement, um, that asserted that Jews were a defined body politically, even existing outside of a state. So the story that I'm trying to tell really is chapter one in this big story of modern Jewish economics and politics in the 19th and 20th century. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I enjoyed our conversations and really enjoyed reading the book as well, which opened up uh, so many different avenues and figures and, and writings that I hadn't heard of before. Um, so I'd like to thank you again for, for coming on the Jewish Studies channel of the New Books Network. We've been talking about Eliyahu Stern's new book, Jewish Materialism, the Intellectual Revolution of the 1870s, published by Yale University Press in 2018. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com.